Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is James Tate to talk about his book, Entering Architectural Practice. James is an architect, author, and educator. He is also a contributing writer to the Architects Journal and a studio tutor at the Macintosh School of Architecture. James, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. So Brian. before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so, so my name is James Tate. I'm a practicing architect. I graduated what, what feels like quite a long time ago from the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow in 2009. Uh, and I managed to win the, the Reba RIBA uh, Silver Medal Student Prize. Um, since, since then, I've worked at many practices in, in the UK, from practices such as John McCasin and Partners in London and Regan Hall in Edinburgh. And I'm currently working on, on some small community projects on, on my own. Um, I also teach. I'm a, a teacher in, in year one. Um, at the Macintosh School of Architecture, um, which is part of the, the Glasgow School of Art. Um, and I write, uh, I'm, a, I'm an author, and my first book, the, the Architecture Concept Book, was released in 2018, and it, that was really about what architecture is. And this new book, which uh, we're, we're going to talk about today, Entering Architectural Practice, is really about how architecture is practiced in, in real life, I suppose. Very interesting. And so, yeah, so we'll dive right into it. And so the first question I have is, I guess my own bias is I sort of, there's always been this dichotomy of architecture, kind of the academic versus the practicing architect. And so you have a similar situation in which you practice and you teach. I, I myself do that. And so what made you write this book, which I'll, again, let out my bias that I think is very important to read if you're a student. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it probably the genesis of, of the idea for the book really came from when I was a student, and I always remember um, probably in my, my final year um, in architecture school, um, I, I was kind of struggling in a in a design tutorial, and the studio tutor said, "I, I don't really know what, what you're what you're stressing out about because what you do here isn't really." Uh, it's nothing compared to designing real buildings in practice. Um, and, and at that point, I had no experience of, of working in practice, really beyond a, a couple of uh, few month long placements and, and things like that. Um, so I think that, that comment um, kind of stuck in my head. And I, I was thinking, well, well, what is it to be to be a, a, an architect uh, designing in practice? What, what is the difference? Um, 
And then I think when, when I went out into to the real world, uh, let, let's say, um, I, I realised exactly what, what uh, my tutor was, was talking about. Um, and I think over 10 to 15 years experience um, in the industry, um, I've really come to realise that, that I think there is quite a big discrepancy, I suppose, between how we are taught in, in architecture school and the reality of, of what, what you're involved in um, as a practising architect. Um, and I think the, the real driver for, for wanting to write the book was knowing that my colleagues felt the same. I think we, we all felt that, that there was, at times, some, some limited opportunities for creativity. Um, there was, uh, you were doing things that, that you maybe hadn't been, been trained for. Um, but at the same time, not, not, not to be um, negative about that experience, it was also its own learning environment in, in practice, um, which I found um, challenging but but uh, very rewarding as well because you, you you were actually creating things that that had a real life life impact. So I think it came from a personal reaction to that that uh, transition from being a, a student to being a practicing architect, and then realizing that that I, I wasn't alone in 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 uh, feeling this 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 difference between the two. So I really wanted to try and study the subject a bit more um, and also impart some of my, my own uh, real life experience. And I think from since, since the book has been released at the end of uh, the very end of, of last year, um, I've had a lot of positive contact from students and, and other professionals to say, yes, I think this is an issue that, that uh, needs explored and, and to make students aware of, of what to expect. Um, and I think also there's obviously a, a lot of books which are, are dedicated to the practice of architecture, but most of them were generally about, about contracts and uh, about how to, how to act and how to be an architect, but, but less of them um, married the design sensibilities that are cultivated in architecture school with the realities of practice and that, that is, that's really what what the book aims to do is to combine some of the the issues raised in, in maybe some of the, the the slightly drier textbooks that you find on the subject with with the 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 issues that that the passions that that you cultivate in and as a student in architecture um, so really just trying to explore these two different worlds um, of learning because I, I do think they're both um, quite unique learning environments. So, yeah, that, that, that's essentially well, Absolutely. <laughs> and so you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, you know, any architect who's practicing has made some kind of joke or comment about how everything you learn is, is kind of in the firm, not in the school. I guess yeah. one point yeah. I think is worth mentioning, though, is you do say fairly early in the book, though, that you aren't suggesting that schools mimic practice. You do still think there needs to be kind of a separation. You're just more suggesting, and you kind of just said it again, it, you know, it's not necessarily teaching about contracts, but it is kind of teaching students that you don't work individually, you work as teams. You know, that's just one example at the top of my head. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, there, there there is a certain um, attitude potentially in, in practice where where they, they want students to be able to to just come in knowing all of the the computer programs and all of the the, the contracts that they deal with, but we also need to make sure that, that we're never losing that uh, ability to explore and design and create. Um, and I think um, it, it's a tricky balance, um, but I think going too far, um, it, I, I think at the moment it can, it can sometimes be too far towards uh, the design aspect of it. Um, and another, on another hand, uh, when you're in practice, uh, it can sometimes feel like you, that you're you're more focused on the production. So, what what I'm really trying to say to the students is, this is what awaits you, and this is how to to deal with it, but still achieve the design ambition and your own. Uh, passions, uh, pursue your own passions and practice. You had mentioned, you know, so you, you, you talked about the, the importance of design, not just completely ignoring it and having students who can read contracts and write specifications. You know, yes. So you kind of talk about in the beginning, this idea of the untested ideal versus adapted reality, how one is for the architectural community, whereas the other one is for more of the non-architectural community. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more yes. about that. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, when I spoke about the, the genesis of the book with the comment from my studio tutor, that actually led me um, to take a project that I won as a student. I won a lot of awards for, which was a, a project proposal for a, a seaweed farm. It won international student awards. Um, but one of my tutors suggested that, that I try and uh, almost uh, design the project in more detail for, for this specific community. Um, so I, I had all these, these accolades and awards from from uh, the architect, architecture, you know, uh, not profession, but the, the, the student bodies that, that, that run the profession. Um, and then I, then I took the project into uh, this local community. It's a, a village of, of maybe around uh, three to four hundred people, and I was quite shocked actually at, at the reaction uh, to, to to the scheme. Um, I mean, they they told me to to just go away and completely redesign it. They told me to take it further out of the village where nobody could see it because it it, it was ugly. That, that was one of the words they used. So it was a real awakening, and that that was as a as a twenty three year old. Uh, Slightly naive, uh, very very idealistic student, and it was a bit of a, a rude awakening. So I think ever since then, I've I just I've wanted to try and bridge that gap um, and not lose sight of the design, but also make sure that the design doesn't get lost in in the process of of uh, of the practice of architecture. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think that was a really yeah. Well, it's a very interesting point that you kind of touch on a few other times in the book. This idea that, you know, sometimes architects and the architecture profession is kind of becoming a little inclusive and isolated. And the one chapter you that I'd love to talk about specifically is the idea of jargon. 
you know, I, I personally, I, you know, I went to seven years of architecture school, graduate school. I read constantly. And when I left school and I talked to people, I, nobody knew what I was saying. And that's not at the time. It seems like it's intelligence. But what the reality is, is it's just that pretentious, inclusive speech that doesn't actually mean anything to anyone else. And so, you know, you kind of mentioned the, this concept that uh, true architecture is the idea is the architect is a translator. And I, I thought that was very powerful. I was wondering if you could explain that to us a little more. Yeah, so I think I think as as you very rightly point out, I think um, in in academia um, there's there's quite a quite a lot of architectural jargon, um, and I think I pick up some some particular words and, and phrases that that are maybe used by by both students and and architects, and in my view, a lot of them seem to try and oversell a design. Um, or make it more academic and, and more uh, obscure than, than it actually is. Um, and I think that chapter, um, well, there's, there's a whole section of the book which is about uh, communication. And I think, I think reappraising the language that we, that we use um, is a really key, key role um, because we can communicate very well through words and draw. Uh, sorry, through images and drawings, and I think I think quite often uh, clients and and other uh, people involved in the communities and and engineers and all of the all of the people who are involved in, in architecture uh, in creating creating architecture um, can understand these. But I think sometimes when we when we um, obfuscate. Obf um, the, the meaning of, of them uh, for our own ends, I, th I think it, it can be, it, it, it can serve to, to uh, blunt the, the efficacy of, of what we are actually trying, trying, to, trying to achieve. Um, and I think, I think a good example of that in, in public life is probably politicians. Um, I, think, I think we, we tend to engage more with politicians who who tell the truth and, and don't use uh, middle management jargon to, to explain quite quick simple ideas so um, excuse me. so yeah I, th I think that that is is very important for us to have the same clarity in our words um, that we we are quite comfortable with it in our, in our drawings and and uh, images absolutely Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You had, you had just talked about the you know your your entire chapter on communication, and I know personally I was going to kind of send out quite a few quotes to my own students. You know, you had mentioned kind of one of the biggest failings of academia is the fact that every project is kind of like these one person's isolated silo teams, where in the reality, the second yeah. you enter a firm, there isn't a single project that doesn't have at least you know five team members. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know. 
I always give a group project. And at the end of the semester, when you get your feedback back, it's always the same thing. Tons of students complain about working with groups because they don't like working with other people. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, exactly. and I guess if any of my students listen, you know, the reality is that's architecture is a collaborative effort, no matter what project you're doing. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that that's something that, that um, I've, I think there's a wider issue of, and it probably, probably stems from, from uh, probably stems from the Renaissance with, with um, architects like Brunelleschi who were, who were seen as, as um, these, these uh, intensely creative individuals, which, which they were. Um, and then I think it was probably reinforced um, this idea of the, 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 the great individual architect um, with like, like Le Corbusier and, and Louis Kahn and, and Mies van der Rohe. And I think, I think there's a hangover from that period um, that, that we still see the architect as some sort of lone, uh, usually, usually male, uh, usually relatively uh, aging in years and, and uh, as some sort of lone uh, creative genius. And the reality is that, that it, it just, that's never the case. And I think, I think I've seen in my own teaching uh, what, what we've been trying to do recently um, and, and again, collaboratively as part, part of a teaching group is to, to make sure that, that actually the majority of the students' projects um, are group projects where they're working together um, either, either as, as fellow architecture students, so maybe groups of, of three or four students, or even we, we've started to um, create connections with uh, engineers and quantity surveyors and project managers um, to try and get students into the habit of working collaboratively, uh, collaboratively. and I think it's, it's obviously still important that, that students cultivate their own response to, to a design project but to do that for maybe say, say you have three projects uh, three, three student projects per year, um, I think the balance should be tipped more towards collaborative projects so that so that um, students can can develop a way in which to communicate with others to to explore their designs and and, and ultimately improve them. Um, and I think one probably the biggest shock that I had when I, when I entered practice was, Dealing with contractors, um, just in terms of, they, they just knew so much more than I did about about how materials went together, um, what dimensions, what thicknesses worked um, in reality, and I I had I had no idea, um, and I was the one who was supposed to be uh, effectively telling them what to do, and I think I think that that balance has to has to be addressed. Uh, in education, so that when we come out of education, we're able to to quite confidently um, engage with others in order to to enhance our, our design. I would agree. I know, and you know, you kind of mentioned construction. 
you you actually talk about at length that uh, you know it's tough when you're a student. You kind of want to latch onto the first job you get because it is hard getting that first job. But there is value in doing your research and finding the right company. And just you know, there's tons of points, but the first one that comes to my mind as you're talking is you know being involved in construction. You know, it's sad, but I've worked with people who in many years have never been to a job site. They've never interacted with the construction administration which to me is kind of the biggest failing. That's my own personal opinion, of course. And so you had, you actually talked about uh, kind of, you know, you for lack of a better term, you just discussed that there are still a lot of stereotypes about architects. A lot of people do picture, as you said, the older white male in a suit who's very arrogant and eccentric, but he does cool buildings. Whereas, you know, that's we, yeah. obviously that's we're trying to move away from that. But another one that you talk about that, not, not a stereotype, more of a stigma is kind of the idea that there's poor working conditions, you're underpaid, you're overworked, you're not appreciative, but that's just what you put in the time. And I know I personally, I did it. So I'm kind of a hypocrite to hear saying that I think it's a valuable point that you write about that you really, that shouldn't be accepted. No, com- yeah, completely. And I mean, I think I, I too, um, like, 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 like yourself, you, you just mentioned there, I, I too, Put myself through through the mill uh, during uh, practice and in, in, in some ways, but I think with the the benefit of, of a bit of experience and, and hindsight, hindsight um, I think I, I now realise that I, I was being exploited in, in some ways um, in set, in certain places. I mean, I experienced I've worked in quite quite a lot of different practices, and, and not all of them were, were like that. Um, but, but somewhere, um, and I think making students aware of that is really crucial um, for them to, to to understand what it is that they are they are entering. Now, I mean, there's 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 kind of two sides to it. Obviously, with any with any profession, um, I think I think you have to show a passion, show a commitment, and sometimes, and I say this in the book, sometimes you do have to the extra extra yard and, and, and put in a bit, bit of extra work to to develop your your ability to, to meet deadlines and uh, explore designs as well as uh, as well as deliver um, what is needed um, but I think what what it really bugs me and, and I think what is starting to students are becoming a lot more and young architects have become a lot more aware of this is that that there is an element of exploitation there as well because I think um, there's a whole and I think it's probably worse um, where, where you are in, in the US in terms of unpaid internships um, and the lack of the, 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 the lack of kind of uh, adequate remuneration unpaid overtime was was probably the biggest thing that I experienced um, I, I don't think I've ever been paid overtime my, my whole career um, and I remember one time I worked out that um, I if, if I get paid by the hour I would have been better not not going to to university including uh, to be an architect at all um, so yeah it, it's a double-edged sword I think I think it, it's not it's not black and white but I do know in, in the UK um, there are there are more um, there's more there's more awareness now of, of of that situation that there's quite a few two or three different movements in in, in the UK 
in that, that advocating uh, things like unionization or, or even just just more awareness of, of what 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 is happening um so yeah it's it's a it's a it's a tricky tricky subject it is and speaking from experience i, I know I, I know the, the stresses and the strains that that, that situation at the moment can can sometimes Yonder. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I think what's really tricky here, and I think this is all over, not just the U.S., this, there's been this conversation probably forever about, you know, what do you call unlicensed architects? You know, and in the United States, it's intern. And it seems kind of trivial that your job title would affect it. But I do think the fact that being an intern, it does sort of make a lot of that seem a lot more acceptable. You know, again, I can only speak from my own experience. You know, the frustration of being a 26-year-old intern is what made me go get my license and so yeah, yeah. again that conversation has been happening forever and unfortunately i think when people become licensed they stop caring as much what unlicensed so i think that's sort of what i'm yeah. sure it's, it's much more yeah. complicated than that but i know from my opinion in the u.s i think that's part of what exaggerates that what, what one of the things that i was quite shocked to to realize when i when i started um in practice, was that some of the some of the people, and even 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 at director level, had never actually um, completed their their uh, professional uh, had never actually got got their architect's architect's license, um, and they they just they just managed to progress through. I mean, I would always advocate um, to, and I think I say this in the book as well, to to make sure you pursue. Um, the, the license because if there's 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 maybe a, a, a recession then then you're you're more able to to pick up some some maybe small work on your own and, and work, work work on your own account um, and also I think I think that there's just there are standards that are, that are there that are set um, and I think also one thing I did did find that once I had bought that qualification um, it opened up other avenues in terms of uh, if I wanted to apply for, for another job um, within the industry because then you could you could promote yourself as a as a as a licensed uh, architect so there's there's definite benefits to it and I, I mean I know people my, my same age who, who are working in, in uh, practices in, in their mid mid 30s and and they, they don't have their their architectural uh, architect's license, but they're eff- effectively doing the exact same job as, as what what I'm doing at the moment. So it, it's the, again like like everything in the book, I, I try and give a balanced perspective on, on these things and, and make sure that you're you're not too far in, in one camp and and, and uh, or too far in, in, in another. Absolutely, camp. it's a perfect segue though because that was one of the sections I really did want to talk about. The idea of licensure, you know, and it's, I know when I was a student, I didn't actually understand the process of becoming licensed. I still don't think it's probably being taught as much as it should. You have a statistic that's like only one in three students become licensed. I would actually think it's lower than that. And so, it, you mm-hmm. know, as mm-hmm. you said, it's not that you, you have to be licensed or you don't know what you're doing. There's just so many benefits to becoming licensed that, you know, it makes sense. And that was something I would I've, I've tried to preach to my own students. You had, you talk about the idea that there are alternative modes of practice. I've spoken to quite a few people on the show that you know in all the fields, architecture seems to be kind of the slowest. We are still stuck on the chasing billable hours model, 
and in reality yeah. it has to evolve and this is something i didn't appreciate until like a few years ago when i started my own firm the need to bring in other income so actually pretty similar to you that's where i wrote a book and then i started teaching and i don't think a lot of students think of it that way because again when you leave school the first thing you do is get a paid position working in a billable architecture firm exactly yeah yes. and so yeah i mean i yeah, sorry, sorry. And so I was going to say, you know, so I'd love to hear more about the importance of diversifying your skill set, your practice, etc. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's actually linked to the situation we were in in 2009 when I when I graduated. And also, in, in some ways, the situation we're in at the moment, um, i.e. both uh, a global recession, I think, um, as 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 terrible as they are, they do allow you a bit of opportunity to reflect on on what is it that you that you enjoy about architecture and how can you can you uh, pursue that? Because I think when when times are good, um, as as you've just uh, alluded to there, the temptation is to just just go head uh, head first into the first job that, that comes, and then before you know it, you are um, an architect, an associate, and a director, and you may look back on your career and think, well, well is this exactly what, what I wanted? And, and I'm sure it is in a lot of cases, um, but I think for me personally, uh, in 2009, I was I'd just graduated, um, by all accounts, won, won a lot of student awards, and within a year, um, I was I was basically uh, on the unemployment line, um, collecting benefits and, and things like that. And that period allowed me to start writing. Um, and I don't think I would have written this book um, if I hadn't if I hadn't written the first book, which essentially came from uh, some notes in, in a sketchbook when, when I was when I was unemployed. Um, so I think. There's lots of different ways to diversify, and I think I, I mentioned this in the book. There's different ways to do it, as you and I uh, do. You you can you can pursue teaching and writing, um, but other people I know were, were maybe wanted to get involved in in uh, community projects. So maybe if there was if there was no work, um, paid work, um, steady work in a practice, they would start to approach. Uh, local communities and ask if they needed needed services, and then, then they could find funding for particular projects and, and maybe make a bit of money because we all we all need money to, to survive, unfortunately. Um, so that way, or others, um, were actually were um, interested in the the construction law side of things, and I know I know one or two architects who have, who have uh, gone on to to get degrees in in construction law and and they do that kind of on the side so i think it's about it's about effectively figuring out what what is it you want from your career in architecture and not going head first into to the first job that comes and, and staying there because i think um those benefits those in those kind of pause periods uh and Trying to make make alternative uh, streams of, of income, but also more importantly, pursue your own interests uh, without always kind of slavishly following 
the economy, um, I suppose, would, would be would be the main message from from that chapter. And I think <clears throat> what's quite interesting is I gave a I gave a talk to some of some of our students at the Macintosh School of Architecture, and I actually didn't focus on that chapter. Um, I focused on two two other chapters, and I I realised that, that the majority of them couldn't find couldn't find work. Um, and so I came back and, and I, I, I gave them a specific uh, talk on, on that chapter on, on the recession. So I think it's definitely something that's that's really relevant and current uh, to students right well, now. Well, especially as you say, it's not if a recession hits. Recessions do hit. The economy is very cyclical. Mm-hmm. If you practice for more than a few years, <laughs> you have your ups and downs. So yeah, it's better to definitely. get ahead of it than deal with it, as you said, when you're in the unemployment line. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I was quite shocked to to discover that that on average it was one every seven years. And so I think I, I say in the book that, that if you are on average um, throughout your career, you, you will you will experience four or five. Um, so how are you going to deal with it? And you need to almost think about that when the times are good as well, so that you're storing up you're storing up a skill base. You're storing up a knowledge base that can be applied elsewhere uh, when when the the bad news may, yeah. may come to you. So, so as you know, as I've hinted, this is you know the books for many people, but I would really urge any students listening that this is the kind of book to pick up. Obviously, there's hundreds of pages that we just won't be able to get through. Yeah, so I wanted yeah. to thank you again for being on the show and talking with me. No problem at all. It's been, been Absolutely. my pleasure. Uh, perhaps we can talk again about some of the other books in the future. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be. I've got, I've got quite a lot, quite a lot of ideas going. At and so the book is entering architectural practice by James Tate. I want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day. And thank you, James, for speaking with me. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure.